Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are super jazzed that you haven't heard that word in a while for another great episode of the show. Awesome. Uh, I got to say it was a very, very, we, we've been, you know, only a week I think uh, has passed since the last time we spoke uh, on the show. Uh, in, did you get a new job yet? I did not get a new <laughs> job yet. If Lens, uh, uh, our guest is, is con- confused what we're talking about. Uh, I work in tourism. Everybody knows that. And our, uh, our finance minister told me to go find another job. Go because, find another job. Because we're going to be permanently closed. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. We'll see where, where things go. No, I'm, I'm still uh, thankfully and blessedly employed. So we're okay at the moment, but uh, many of our colleagues uh, in, in the industry are not, so my hearts go out to them. Uh, Indeed. Apparently and, uh, they'll be getting some sort of a, a compensation package maybe, but we'll see. Might be too little too late. Uh, definitely our hearts go out to our friends at Dot Tours, um, who yeah. I've worked with many times over the years who had to close down their fantastic operation. Yeah, they do. And Dot, I, I have to just say... That makes me very sad. ...is... Uh, I, I'm, I'm director of sales at Kenneth Stores, dot competitor, uh, and and you know I say to people today, you you want to beat people fairly at the game. You, you don't yeah. want them to go out uh, like this. So, um, yeah, hats off to them. Uh, very very sad. Anyways, we got a lot we got a lot going for you today on the, uh, on the show. We got a, a fully packed hour here, and we want to get to it. So, uh, Dan, without further ado. Yeah, we have with us um, someone who I was introduced to recently, and I said, you got to come on Juanced. Len, I'm going to first pronounce your name the right way and then the American way. Len Khodorovsky, or Kutterkovsky, who uh, was most recently State Department Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Public Affairs, also a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and the Chief Marketing Officer of America's Economic Diplomacy. He was also the Trump State Department's Secret weapon, as uh, coined by the Jerusalem Post, the guy who helped President Trump, the president of the United States, tweet some of his most famous or infamous memes. Prior to joining government, Len was an ad executive for more than two decades where he helped Fortune 100 companies develop global ad campaigns and grow their brands. He's now the chief marketing officer of the Technology Trust Network, an organization working to secure freedom through widespread adoption of trusted technologies. Len, welcome to Juanced. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm ready to come ready to get Juanced. Let's you, go. It's all Juanced, man. Everything we do is Juanced. So you're in it already. You can't escape. <laughs> we could technically. You could. You could. You just turn off the phone. <laughs> You're making me nervous. No, no don't no, be no. nervous. Don't be nervous. There's no, there's nothing to be nervous about. It's, uh, it's very painless, actually. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that, it's that juance that you won't feel it. 
you are coming to us from where today, sir? I am in uh, God's country in Jersey. New Jersey. The United States of America. Yes, sir. Land of the strong. Where uh, Whereabouts in Jersey? We North Jersey or South Jersey? Central Jersey, right by Rutgers University. Okay. Exit 9. Exit 9. Bike. Exactly. New Brunswick. Good times. All right. What's, what's your Twitter handle? I'm trying to tag you here on the live stream. It's a message from Len. Message from Len. That's it. That's his Twitter handle if you want to follow him. So, uh, yeah, we actually, we had the honor of, uh, uh, I had the honor, maybe you didn't, of being introduced uh, through our mutual friend, uh, the journalist and, and TV presenter, Havi Buzo, who uh, is now visiting Israel for the first time and uh, promoting the new show you guys are doing together, uh, Yala, new show called Yala. You, you want to awesome. give a shout out about it? You want to give it a plug? Well, yeah, Yala, of course. Um so, uh, you know, uh, Havy and I know each other from the days that I worked at the State Department. She covered the State Department. Uh, we, you know, actually met through a mutual friend. Uh, she was covering Iran issues, and uh, we got to know each other a little bit back then. And uh, we stayed in touch after uh, the administration. Uh, and we were, you know, just hanging out recently and talking about the year that's been Abraham Accords, the blossoming peace in the Middle East, um, all the positivity and promise and hope in the region. Uh, and we kind of uh, thought about collaborating on a project that would advance the peace in the best way that we know how, which is through, you know, through the skill sets that we both have. She is a journalist, uh, myself as a marketing and advertising person. And we uh, came up with an idea of a show called Yella. Uh, it's aimed at the uh, next generation of uh, Arab uh, audience across the Middle East. Um, and really, it's about everything that the youth of the region have in common and nothing about that they don't. We leave politics to others. We talk about music. We talk about Miss Universe, which Havy's covering in Israel right now. Right. We talk about potential business deals in the region, uh, tech. Um, all, all the things that young people care about and are excited about and that the advent of the Abraham Accords are making possible. So we, we're hoping and we're hoping to advance the idea that the Arab youth of today have the best shot in, in a long time, if not ever, to realize their dreams. And all of it is made possible by the a warming of the ties between Israel and, the, and its Arab neighbors. And we hope to um, to help that warming and and build on it. And uh, very excited about it. You know, everybody we've talked to loves the name Yalla, first of all. You know, it uh, works in Arabic, works in Hebrew. That's right. Even works in Persian, from what I understand. Too. Oh, does it? <laughs> so, so we're, I, I mean, secretly, I'm hoping uh, the Persian youth of tomorrow will join us uh, sometime soon. But anyway, we're, we're just getting kicked off and uh, working on a pilot. And, you know, as you've seen, you've accompanied Havy in Israel. I have, She's yeah. been busy working on the show and we have some exciting content yeah, we coming did, up. We did some partnerships. And we're with, out there yeah. and we're ready. We're ready to seize on the hope and the excitement and the promise of uh, everything that's happening. That's it's, awesome. it's definitely really awesome. And I have to say that when you are over in, uh, let's say, the UAE, for example, and you actually get to speak to people on the ground there that are excited about the Abraham Accords, you can really start to feel that promise. And when you're living in Israel for so many years, and this is a point that you make 
all the time and and I and I talk about it a little bit less but it's incredibly profoundly resonant that you're going through a very special time and a very special moment for the Arab world for the Jewish world for for all of the world but particularly when you are a, a person who lives here in this region to understand that this is real and it's not just between leaders it's it's a very very poignant uh, moment that I and and you know in that spirit I kind of wish you all the best in what you're doing uh, because your success is our success of course and and I and I and I want to know just be and this will kind of tie into and, and I'll just mention we're doing a lot of content in cooperation with Shiraka which is uh, which is why we have Havi here as our guest uh, and the Sharaka delegation that I was on in the U.S. We're I don't know if it's the first episode, but we'll be one of the first episodes so on the show. L- let me ask you this because this is a question that I throw uh, uh, Dan a lot as well. But how how do you get that message out there in terms of okay, you have this this organization, there's a great idea, and and in and in and in theory, you know, it's 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 going to make a great a great bit of change. But if people don't hear the message and if they're not connected on the grassroots, not even grassroots, but just literally hearing a message or reading a message, they'll never know. So how do you penetrate into the you know hearts and minds of Arab youth or Muslim youth or Persian youth uh, or Israeli youth, for that, for that matter, um, from where you are in, in, in the States? Well, number one, the doors have been opened. So the idea is not something uh, that we need to convince people is possible. It's, it's real. It's already working. They hear it in the, on the news right now. They, they see their leaders interacting with people that they haven't interacted before. They see Israeli government congratulating Bahrain today on, on its national, on national day. day yeah. they, they see, they see uh, Emirati and, and uh, Moroccan and Bahraini leaders congratulating Israel on, uh, on Hanukkah. Uh, you know, so there, there is already uh, a seed that's been planted that... Uh, people in the region see, and of course, young people are much quicker to the information than most people because uh, they access information on their phones. Uh, they talk to each other. They see, they see, you know, uh, 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 news news about everything, and even if not news. When you see collaboration um, uh, between artists, or you see sporting yeah. events, where you, you know, I'll give you one example, and this is. Not, not necessarily, and, and there have been examples of Israeli athletes and Arab athletes competing, but um, very recently, a an Iranian judoka defected from Iran right. because he wasn't allowed to yeah. compete with an Israeli uh, judoka. What's his name? His, uh, Mo, Mo, Mullah something. I saw I he went face. to Kazakhstan, I, I remember. Face. No, he went to Mongolia. Mongolia, that's what it Mongolia, was. Mongolia, yes, exactly. I thought I recognized uh, I it's him. it's Mohammed Malai, yeah. something like that. And there's all uh, kinds of... So, Great pictures with him and uh, Sugimuki together. Yeah. They become exactly. best friends. Exactly, and so so the idea that um, you know we num- so number one we, we don't have to twist any arms of the youth of the region. No. They understand the concept, and I think uh, we're 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 um, as a marketing person. You know, my job has always been to try and figure out what my customers want and what my target audience wants and what do they care about. And it has to be real. It can't be fake. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to act on your message. So you have to tap into their real feelings and their real desires. And, uh, you know, from my time at the State Department, I've, I've been part of this process that's been kind of unearthing these uh feelings that have been dormant mm. for seven decades or more uh, in the region and, and really getting a sense of how people feel about 
uh, topics like this, like peace, like economic ties, like, uh, you know, person-to-person connections. So, so there is a little bit of, um, you know, uh, focus grouping that I've done through my work at, uh, in government through, through the process of bringing Abraham Accords into reality. So I do have a sense of how, how people in the region feel. Um, but, but also, it's a matter of marketing. So it's not enough to know that. It's, you have to build excitement. Right. You have to create something that people gravitate to, that, uh, that creates interest and that they tell their friends about. And that, that's, you know, uh, probably more of a science than, than art mm. in many ways. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we do that part right. But I do know that the idea and the concept is sound. I do know that there is potential there. And I'm very hopeful that if we execute on the marketing portion of it and, you know, place it in the right, uh, on the right outlet, make, make sure it has enough exposure, it builds enough momentum over time, I'm, I'm confident the message is going to penetrate mm-hmm. and resonate. I, I agree with you. Um, I want to take a step back for a second here. Uh, you know, you come from a marketing background for, for you know, Fortune 100 companies. Uh, um, how did you end up in government? How did you end up, um, I, I believe at one point you told me you were also kind of doing the social media for Trump's election campaign, and then you end up doing basically the public messaging campaigns for for, for some of the biggest things that happened uh, during the, the, the recent presidency. How, how, did, how did you get into all that? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the truth The truth is, look, I, I've been in advertising my whole career. I've worked in New York for about 20 years. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, and I was always politically curious and right-leaning. Look, my background, I, I, I came as a refugee from the Soviet Union to the United States. Oh. So I, I've seen communism firsthand. And, you know, my family was not fa- fond of communism. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Why not? So, so What's the worker? So, you know, it's by, by, the, it's the worker's there, paradise. What's there not Come to on, love? Man. Come on. Well, I, I've lived in a worker's paradise, as it happens to be. And uh, th- there are neither workers nor is there a paradise. Right. So so it's, it's like, you know, I, I guess I, I was kind of predisposed to uh, leaning toward the um, right side of politics, conservative small government uh philosophy i get it uh the the less the the less government involvement the better it sounds to me uh and so that's kind of where where i always you know how i've always thought politically but you know in in an advertising sector in new york city you know you really don't talk about conservative politics all too much probably not if you want to keep Um, a job yeah not that popular uh i mean look you know I, I was happy to see Rudy Giuliani become mayor of New York City, uh, who transformed New York. You know, that was a big time uh, during which I worked in, in New York. But uh, all in all, look, you know, after, after 20 years, I, I kind of started getting um, antsy. You know, I, I was uh, getting a bit of burnout and I was trying to figure out what's next for myself. Uh, what do I care about? Do I really want to keep going up the ladder? Uh, or, or try something different. And my wife was much smarter than me. Um, let me take a little breather and uh, and think about it. And uh, you know, I got a chance to see my kids play baseball and go to their plays and and kind of re- rebalance a little bit. And at some point, you know, look, my wife uh, basically said that, look, you're you're good at advertising. You're interested in politics. 
why don't you do political advertising? There you go. And, uh, you know, sounded intuitive, right? I, except I didn't know anybody in politics, uh, except one person. That's not true. I knew one person. And that, that, that one person is the guy I reached out to just to kind of pitch the idea of like, hey, how do I get into this? How do I get into politics? And he told me, well, you know, it's not, it's not good enough to be good at advertising. You got to know people in politics to get into politics. Luckily, I knew that one person. So I said, hey, I know you. Can, can we ask who uh, it is? Um, he, he, he was a political operative uh, in New York City at the okay. time. And he had a few connections. Got and it. he connected okay. me with, um, with uh, uh, an advertising agency called Jamestown Associates. Uh, which is a political advertising agency that ca- that does conservative political campaigns. Sounds like it. Like um, if, if you had to come up with a name for a political conservative campaign ad agency, it would be the Jamestown. Was it the Jamestown Corporation? J- Jamestown Associates. Associates, even better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got like real American pedigree. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, long story short, I I did some work for Jamestown, and they liked what I did, and they hired me as creative director. And a few years later, after doing a whole bunch of national campaigns, um, uh, you know, Donald Trump was became our client for the general election uh, of uh, the 2016 cycle. So I, I ended up I ended up working as the creative director on TV advertising wow. for the Trump uh, general election campaign in 2016. Now, when that happens, are you? How much contact do you have with the man Donald Trump at that time? Is he coming into the office and giving you his vision? And, no, no, no. He was not coming to my office. Of course um, not. But like, but, were you? Were, would you come to him and were like? Was there a, a meeting in Trump Tower where he would say, "Listen, this is what I'm thinking." I was hoping you'd do like an impression. Man. I can't do. Good. Uh, I'm not going right. to embarrass myself. Yeah. No. No. So I, I wasn't doing the face to face with uh, Donald Trump. My boss, the CEO of Jamestown, was doing that and uh, was was bringing the word back home and uh, the direction of what what we needed to execute. So how does that work? I, I did meet him a couple of times during the process, um, which was fascinating because at the I mean, at the time, you know, of the Donald Trump that everybody knows now and associates with his persona was really the polar opposite of what I saw personally in the fall of 2016. Can, can you share more? Uh, it was actually very disarming, to be honest with you. Uh, and I'm sure he wasn't like that all the time, but he was very gentlemanly, very courteous, very, uh, you know, um, you know, very, very much a, um, a thoughtful, uh, engaged uh, individual. Um, so I, I, I found it to be actually very interesting and, and, um, and and worthwhile working for him and for the campaign. Uh, you know, in addition to him, obviously there are other people involved in a campaign like Jared Kushner and, and, the, and the crew and everybody associated with that campaign at the time um, uh, was really, really like a, a fun startup operation uh, that and in fact, I really believe in many ways why he ended up winning is because we were much more agile than the Clinton campaign. Interesting. We weren't afraid of risk taking. We weren't afraid to mix things up and change that's things for sure. in the middle. Yeah, that's for sure. Can you can you tell me that? Because I'm trying to get the timeline here. At this point, is he also in the field running against other Republican candidates? 
Is this before no, the primary? He's already he has he already has the nomination. At oh, that okay. Point. So you're not so you're not start, trying to compete with a, yeah, against other summer of 2016. He already secured the nomination, and the whole fall campaign was just him against Hillary. So what? You know, we could geek out on just this for like I think three hours, but like. What what does that mean now as creative director of, of the marketing campaign for, for the president now? What kind of things are you highlighting? You know, maybe give us a few highlights of things that we probably all saw on TV uh, or on the internet that, that you were behind. Or, and, or even or even the thought process behind or, it. Or even more so, like, how, how is it strategized? Yeah. Is, is, it, is it, you know, I'm trying to appeal to a certain demographic of disenfranchised voters in the South, per se, or in rural America? go for that what do you do like how do you how do you sure. package your um, message and- well like like any good advertising campaign uh you have to have a sound strategy so uh and you, you have to execute on the strategy and you have to be consistent about it so we we uh, uh you know from from uh, a lot of the uh internal polling that was being done and uh and and like groundwork that was being done yeah, we had a good sense of who our voters were going to be. Uh, we we did have a sense, probably even better than the Clinton campaign, where the hidden voters were going to be as mm. well. Because we, we did see discontent. We did see distrust of Hillary Clinton, even among a lot of Democratic voters, uh, especially in, uh, you know, blue-collar, rust belt states yeah. like Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, so we, we, we did see potential there that they probably just didn't even, uh, bother to, uh, to need to try and neutralize us. Um, so we, we knew we were, uh, we knew the profile of the individual that we were going after, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also knew some soft spots in some, uh, you know, states where we had to compete, uh, you know, there was a roadmap, there's a formula that you have where you you know it's about math you have to figure out a way to to win the presidency based on math on on, on based on where the electoral votes are um, so all of that put together and where the voters are who the voters are uh, where we are in, in tracking the the race as it is today you know we kind of had to make sure that our our uh, you know our media buys our messaging for the ads our specific outlets where we bought ads, uh, the the campaign, the messages at the rallies were all in sync. And which was uh, what? And, then? And, what was and, the main like, you know, strategy? What was the main message strategy? Well, I would even go a step. Excuse, if if I may, uh, it from afar, it seemed like it was really the first campaign that I can remember. Um, and, and and yes, in the Obama campaign, they also in in twenty what was that twenty two thousand eight? No, even after that, the one after that, but they they did have a social media strategy. But this seemed like it was the first real full on one hundred percent sort of campaign where social media and the role of new media was so forward facing in the campaign in terms of what would be considered, let's call it mainstream. Uh, or, or, or what were mainstream methods were no longer so mainstream. And, and you saw Trump 
embrace this strategy of the rally. Well, apparently it and was Len embracing the strategy. Of I, I'd never seen well, that no, before. No, I, I had never, you know, you, you, you would hear about or you would read in history, you know, Lincoln would travel on these crazy campaigns where he would take the train and go all up and down the, the East Coast of the United States and then travel way out to California and he would have rallies because that was the day before they had, you know, radio and television and these things. But but I'd never seen that before. And then Trump embraced this this sort of, this tactic of the rally traveling all around the United States and getting people together in stadiums for these big rallies. And it became a keystone of his campaign. So, you know, that also must have deeply figured into any sort of a strategy. And, and maybe you built your messaging around that. Well, no, we, we didn't build our messaging around the rallies. Rallies are just rallies are a, a tool to get the message out. Um, just like TV is a tool or, or radio is a tool. Um, uh, so, so look, I mean, the president gets the credit for going out and getting people excited about the message. Um, but our message was actually fairly simple. Uh, we saw the disaffection of a lot of Americans, uh, who thought that, you know, the powerful have left them behind. Mm. Uh, they, they're, uh, we've seen years and years of broken promises from Washington and both Democrats and Republican working people really felt like they didn't have a voice in Washington. And here comes this guy who breaks all the China in the world and pun intended, because he's also <laughs> the first guy who the first serious political candidate who ran on a couple of foreign policy issues where typically foreign policy doesn't really play into, um, you know, a, a campaign matrix so much, unless there's a war going on or there's terrorism, uh, like you know, ISIS. You understand because there was, um, you know, we were we were fighting ISIS at the time. But the things like China were one of the core issues why Trump was running because, and the message was again very simple: China's been ripping us off forever. You know, and everybody can understand that the people in the Midwest can understand their jobs going to China and nobody's talking about that. Nobody's stopping that. They're seeing globalization happen in front of them. Nobody gives a damn yeah. that they're losing their jobs. Uh, or, you know, yeah, sure. You know, they're going to be retrained in some other thing, but not really. Um, and so he was really the first guy who tapped into people's frustration about nobody listening to them, about real core issues that matter to their life. Even when you think about China, it's not so much the China thing, it's the losing man the manufacturing sector of the United yeah. States, you know, where so many people were employed in those Rust Belt states. Right. But he, he also had the effect of taking something which you know, if we're talking about employment and jobs going to other countries and globalization, I mean, these are very deeply complex and nuanced uh, 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 topics of concern. And, you know, it, not everybody has the ability, the wherewithal or the time to really sit down and, and dig into them from the perspective of an academic or an intellectual policy perspective. And, and he was able to really make it concise in these sort of uh, memes almost yeah you know he to talk to, to, to memes really well, break it down and say look this is what you're feeling you can't really put your finger on it why but i'm gonna tell you and i'm a well, showman and i'm gonna make it, it happen so, so so donald trump is you know has been a public spotlight for a long time he's been you know a new york fixture for a long time he knows marketing 
he he knows what sells, right? I mean, like he, he just came off of 10 or 12 years on uh, The Apprentice, uh, which was a show, uh, you know, a big show in the United States, uh, which he sure. was a star of. So, he, you know, he, 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 he has an innate feeling of how to sell uh, and, and how, how to talk to the audience. But, but also, it's, you know, as I said in the beginning, so it's one thing to just talk crap. It's another thing to tap into people's real feelings and, and emotions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where, where something you say really resonates with people in a real way. Uh, and that's exactly what happened e- even on issues like China because people understood that it, it's, it's, it's not that he's talking about foreign policy. He's actually talking about my job disappearing, you know, the empty factory in my town that's dormant. Yeah. Um, the, 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 all of the industries that used to be the, you know, where, where the United States was the, the leader of the world have all of a sudden kind of went somewhere else over 20 years or so of globalization. And so that, and that's just one topic, you know, so, you know, globalization, losing hope, not being heard, you know, the whole issue with, um, you know, I don't know if you recall, but President Obama at one point called uh, what Hillary Clinton then defined as the deplorables, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people clinging to yeah. their guns, Bible and, you know, uh, and religion or something along those lines. And, and those are exactly the people that became the core Trump voters, the disaffected deplorables, yeah. uh, who cl- you know, who are religious people, people of faith who are working people who like their second amendment and their guns and their American bill of rights. Right. And if, and, if, if memory serves me straight, they also leaned into that term and embraced it at that oh, stage. Oh, no question. Well, so what, one of the ads that I worked on, of course, had to be the deplorables. Uh, and it was a manifesto because yes, you know, where, where, where the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton made a, an or- a tremendous mistake. When, when she stumbled and used that word to define half of the American population. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we, we knew we, we knew we had something we, we could use. Can I ask you a question? Uh, so, sorry to interrupt. When, when you're sitting yeah. around and then like it comes across the news that she dropped that bomb, you know, oh my God, Hillary Clinton said the word deplorables. What, what are you feeling in that moment? Is it like, oh my God, we got, we got to move now. We, we got to touch down like, here. Yeah. Yeah. We got to get pick six, like you know. Yeah. Yeah, we got to cut an ad right now, uh, and and uh, and we did. You know, that's that's kind of uh, that's how how it worked. You know, sometimes you can plan for things, but sometimes you just have to respond in real time, and that was one of those things. And we responded really, really fast with an ad on. You know, of course, uh, having her on tape, calling half the population half deplorable, deplorables, yeah, and rallying, rallying our. And up, you know, eventual voters to uh, to the candidacy. I, I got to so, yeah, I, I got to ask like you a, a question here. Everybody knew we had to make an ad right then and there, so yeah, yeah. It, it was a no brainer. I, I got to ask a question here. Um, after having been on the inside, and maybe you don't want to answer this, but I definitely want to ask it. Did you were you able to get a sense if Trump really cared about these issues? Or was he just looking for a way to become the president? Um, because if you listen to a lot of political analysts who were speaking before, and, and if you look at if you look at Trump, uh, 
you know, he was donating to the Democratic Party for years. He, you know, I don't think he was ever, I'm not a Trump expert. I don't think he was ever a Republican. Um, and, and so did you, were you able to get a sense that he actually cared about these issues that he, you know, I think he, he did really uh, manage to, to lean into um, frustrations, deep, deep held frustrations. Like you said, the, the average American worker, both Democrat and Republican, felt like they were left behind by the establishment. I get that. Do you think he actually cared about that? Or was this just like, oh, here's another product I can sell and I can become the president of the United States if I sell this right? No, he, he really did care. And what he, here's what he cared about. He was really pissed that America was losing. <laughs> that that, that mm. it, in his mind, for for decades and decades, politicians who know nothing about making good deals were making deals that were selling the best brand in the world down the river. Mm. And with that, you know, with that, and and he was he actually had a very um, good sense for the American worker, because remember, you know, he's in a real estate business in New York forever. He's on construction sites. He banters with union guys. You know, he, 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 you know, he, he talks like a guy. So he really has lived that for many, many years. And he had a sense of, you know, these are the guys that are losing and somebody else out there is winning. And, and he was really upset by that. And, you know, the, the issues that floated to the top of a campaign, such as, you know, jobs going overseas or illegal immigration or or even even the Iran deal, if you want to think about yeah. it, which which he also ran on, which was not an intuitive sure. thing for a politician to run in because Iran doesn't really poll anywhere beyond like one to two percent awareness in the United States. Mm. Uh, but but he was so upset by the horrible deal that the JCPOA was, which was another symptom of somebody making a terrible deal on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the United States of America, that he took it personally. He really took all those things personally. And he believed that he, you know, if nobody else is running and is and is capable of fixing this stuff and turning it around, then he was going to do it. And that's, that's why he was doing it. Okay. You know, of course he wanted to win like any politicians. Nobody runs to lose. Sure, sure. So so of course he wants to win. But he also was a gen- was genuinely tapped into the issues that he was running in. He wasn't like patronizing people by uh, by telling them what they wanted to hear. As a matter of fact, most of the things he said were counterintuitive if you were going to be a political consultant yeah. and telling the politician what to say. That's true. It's true. So, and, and so in was, a way, it was probably one of the most, if not the most genuine campaign, and certainly in my political lifetime. Um, and it really tapped into what people, regular people were really feeling. How, how does the social media strategy figure into getting him elected and then getting well, his message out during the presidency? Uh, again, as, as, as a, from, with my marketing hat on, yeah. I'll say... I am channel agnostic, right? You know, it doesn't matter if it's TV, if it's digital, if it's a hot air balloon, if it's a rally, um, it, 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 it doesn't really matter. What really matters is how to reach your target audience at a moment where they are going to be receptive to your message and are going to be motivated to act. So what does that mean so, today, in today's day and age? What does that mean? Well, it means doing your homework and defining you know, making sure you know who is the customer or who is the voter uh, and honing in. It's not, 
not everybody is your audience. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, you're not going to get everybody to do what you want. So you have to kind of segment the audience into who's most likely to do it, who is least likely to do it, and who's somewhere in the middle and figure out how much resources you have and how best to spend those resources in getting your, your message to your core audience mm-hmm. so that more of them do what you're asking them to but, do. But, but further than that, though, he more than anybody else, I think more than the only one that I can remember, was literally, let's say, taking advantage of the fact that he could communicate directly with people through without the filter of the media by embracing social media and tweeting. And, I mean, and, yeah, he went above the media or around the media. Uh, we'd never seen that before. So, so I, I, I agree with you that he, he actually harnessed the power of social media uh, better than any presidential candidate in history. Uh, I, the way that it, I like the way you described it, that he used it to go over the top of the media because it really reminded me the way Reagan went over the top of the media in his day. He didn't, mm. he didn't have social media at the time, right. but he was such a great communicator yeah. that he didn't have to rely on uh, the insider media establishment to translate the message to the voters for him. He knew his audience too, and he was able to, uh, to communicate with them directly. And Donald Trump used Twitter and social media to do that it, with, with, with the tools that he had at his disposal in his own way. So, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you that he used it. One of, one of the, you know, what, one of the advantages of having uh, a free account on social media is that it's free. And uh, so, you know, when you're running a really expensive campaign and you can guarantee that a hell of a lot of people are going to come to your yeah. account to hear what you have to say without paying anybody to get your message out. I mean, you're you're in a good shape. Yeah. You and know, so I just I have to reflect. It's got to be bizarre to be that guy, and you're sitting there in your bedroom in the White House, and you wake up and you watch some some stuff happen on CNN, and then you're like, all right, I'm gonna say something about that. You go on your phone and you say something about that. And then like 30 seconds later, they're like, he's tweeting on TV. He's tweeting about it. And, and he said this. And, and they said, and you're like, I still haven't put on my pants. Like- so, so I want to I get into that for a second. So, uh, but before that, we have to make a bridge here in your timeline. You, you get then recruited from being in the, the marketing team for the campaign. You get recruited to the State Department. Can you just give us a little window into that? Sure. Um, so after after Donald Trump wins, uh, then you need to you, there's a transition period from the Obama administration right. to the Trump administration. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in a very, very short amount of time. And you need all the all the hands you can you can you can get. So I, I raised my hand to come to Washington and help uh, during the transition to get folks through the confirmation process to deal with media issues to, I mean, there's still stuff going on. Uh, there are foreign policy issues that are coming up there. Everything is happening. So I basically w- ended up working in the war room of the, of the presidential transition. Were you, were you uh, in the West Wing? Does the, that mean you were in the uh, West Wing? Inauguration day. No, the transition is not in the West Wing. Oh, Benny's ben obsessed no, no, with not the West, West Wing. Wing. He's, okay. he's not the president yet. He's not the president. So the, you, you, you get, you get, you get this space in like in a random government building in Washington. And, you know, a lot of people buzzing and uh, trying to, you know, just trying to stand up a government, basically. Uh, and so I, w- I was one of those, you know, busy bees you were uh, working 
work, working to get to try and get a government stood up. And uh, uh, and then, you know, after on, on January 20th, um, I, you know, which was an incredible day because uh, I have to tell you, I, I, I brought my parents and my son to the inauguration, took him to the inauguration ball. And, you know, remember, my parents and I are immigrants. We're refugees from the Soviet Union. Uh, my parents came here with no money. And for them to see, to be present at the inauguration ball of an American president was incredibly trippy. And it was, it was probably the proudest moment for me up until, wow. you know, many have happened since then. Up but until coming time, on the show. Yeah, at, at, at that time, it was kind of an incredible feeling. Um, so, you know, the president is, uh, you know, president's in office, and I go back to my job in, in Jamestown. And um, a few months later, somebody I worked in, uh, I worked with at the transition, uh, called me up and, um, and asked me if I wanted to serve my country. And, uh, you know, I was in New Jersey, or actually, I lived in New Jersey, Jamestown's in Philly. You know, obviously, the government's in Washington. My family's in Jersey. I have four kids. My wife has a career. Uh, how am I going to make this happen? I mean, in my mind, in, in like about three seconds, I knew I was going to do it. But I didn't know how I was going to sell it to my wife. <laughs> You're the so, marketing guy. That's, that's <laughs> that, marketing, not sales, man. Different. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, that's marketing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that took like 30 seconds for me to figure out. <laughs> So, so, you know, look, I mean, she, wait, 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 know, what did you say? What did you say to your wife? Um, well, I mean, I told her what I, you know, I, I told her exact, I transcribed the phone call. Uh, and, um, and she, I mean, she knew, she knew in her gut that this is something I'm going to have to do. And, um, and, and she said, you know, we kind of made a deal that I'm, I'll, I'll just, I'll do this for a year. I'll go to Washington I'll get my kicks out. I'll live my dream. As she says, I'll self-actualize <laughs> and I'll come back home. I'll come back home and, and be normal, you know? Yeah. And that that's, you know, after, after, after some vetting, and again, remember, I came from the Soviet Union. And in those days, like Russia, Russia, Russia was all over the place. So my, the first thing in my mind, and I'm sure my parents find is like, um, you know, you came from the Soviet Union and like Russia is really big in the news right now. The last thing they probably need is a Russian close to power. Um, so, um, you know, that's the first question I got during the vetting process. It's like, is there anything you need to tell us? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you're all mispronouncing said, well, my last name. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly, you know, spot on. I said, well, there is my name. Other than that, I should be fine. Uh, and uh, once they got past my name, I, I, I was fine. Um, so, yeah, and, and I ended up uh, joining the administration toward the end of 2017 uh, at the State Department as the um, uh, Deputy Secretary for Global Public Affairs, uh, specializing in digital strategy. That's so essentially, I was, I was put in charge of running the State Department um, um, you know, messaging machine. That's, it's incredible. Um, and, and for, for those who still have yet to connect the dots, that means we're talking about the public messaging across all platforms. Cause you're platform agnostic for what, what were like some of the big things that, that took up your time? I mean, we mentioned them in the intro, but we're talking about, 
the Iran sanctions. Every, every, I mean, the State Department is so everything. everything. Right. It, everything in every country, in every place. So, I mean, some of the things we were dealing with at the time, Russia, ISIS, bombing in Syria, um, you know, there, I mean, you name it, we we dealt with it. So I, I, um, uh, I, I basically ran a team and, and um, tried to get uh, the right framing of, uh, of our, of our, um, of our story out. And, and, you know, th- this is, a, this is an interesting thing. Um, you know, I, I came from the advertising sector in the private sector. So you come to the state department, there are no marketing or advertising people at the state department. There are foreign service officers, there are civil servants, they're, they're like, they're vendors or, or people you bring in from the outside. But you really don't have a team of like hardcore messaging pros mm. that 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 you know that you can just push a button and and they execute stuff. So a lot of what I tried to build was uh, you know kind of best practices of how things are done in the real world, and making sure that because we were breaking a lot of the news, right? Like Pompeo was saying something. That's us leading the news cycle. You know, Trump is saying something. That's us leading the news cycle. So I wanted to make sure that in 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 the events or or particular issues where we were the ones breaking the news, that we were the ones out first with with the package. Mm. You know, we weren't letting you know a a third party news outlet describe what we're doing. I wanted to make sure that we put out something that framed the issue in a way that. We believe it should be framed, so and then have everybody follow suit. That's new, which is no I mean, small thing. And and more than that, I mean, that's what Benny was saying earlier. This is is like as far as again, as far as we're aware, a totally new strategy of go straight to the people. And 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 if you're saying that the State Department or government in general has never had marketing people working directly for it in the administration, then this is something completely groundbreaking in how how things are done. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in a lot of ways it was. Uh, in a lot of ways it was. And, you know, not, not everybody was thrilled about it because State Department and government, they like to, there's a very bureaucratic clearance process, yeah. even on freaking tweets. So, you know. <laughs> they must have loved him. <laughs> they must have loved something Trump. something is happening now and we don't clear a tweet until tomorrow, it's too late. Then we're no longer leading the news cycle. So maybe that, was that explains that it. Actually, that out. that exp- you just explained it. That's why Trump did it himself. He's like, I can't. I got to go over these people. It's going to take too long. Well, in, in in many ways, that was very helpful, actually, because the one thing that was okay was if the president says something, we didn't need to clear it. Right, you'll work for him. So, so so it was very helpful to to do it that way. Um, and, and of course we could riff off of it as well. And did he ever call up like to the department to, to you and, and say, I need you to produce something for me. We're going to do this thing and we need, we need some, you know, well, I mean, on, on major initiatives, um, on major initiatives, it, it wasn't so much, you know, president's off-roading, you know, there was a process and people would get together and work out a strategy and have a, have a sequence of what goes when and sure. who says what, when. So, you know, if you if you can plan for these things, you plan for them, you know, obviously things happen. 
you know, in the real world. And in those, in those, um, in those times, you really have to defer to the president to lead. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you, you riff off of his message, basically. Then is this, is- uh, and, and, and in some areas, for example, uh, you know, I, I ended up specializing in, in Iran or China. So on, on Iran issues, you know, I, I was part of the team that would see things happening before the president might see things happening. Mm-hmm. So we would we would like catch things in real time and would serve them up to the president's team and say, you know what, this would really be good if the president said something about this, because, you know, the timing is crucial for this reason. And, you know, a lot of times he acted on it, you know, then and uh, and that's kind of how that worked. Were there ever times where you guys had one strategy completely outlined or maybe even a messaging campaign in progress and he just said something that totally upended everything? You're like, oh, crap. Like, what do we do with this now? Um, I wouldn't say he upended things, but, you know, he probably used words that we would have preferred (laughs) he didn't use or, you know, frame things slightly differently than we would have framed them. I, I don't think he, 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 he changed policy direction okay. midway for us, uh, but he did change the way we talk about some issues from time to time. Can you give us or an example? Or at least we had, to, we had to kind of, you know, uh, uh, we, we had to account for the way he talked about something in a way that we talked about it so um but but overall we were rowing in the same direction i wouldn't say <laughs> the general you know, we, we, yeah <laughs> in, in that yeah you know it's yeah. not like you know we, we, you know uh, we, uh iran's our friend today and yeah. iran's our enemy tomorrow you know so we we kind of we we, we knew where the policy stood Len, let me ask you this because we were talking before about how you really were the the trailblazer in 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 sort of this this office was the first time that this office was established and and a part of the State Department. Has it been a legacy that's now continued on into the current administration that this that the State Department has a a marketing team on you know on board? Is there house? is there now a Democratic Len Kudarovsky <laughs> somewhere working for? Uh, well, well, so so this was not the first time my team was established. Okay. Um, there, there's always a global public affairs at the State Department. Uh, I should say there was always an office of public affairs. We actually, with the leadership of uh, my boss at the time, Michelle Gaida, um, who really brought many of the different disparate uh, parts of the communications team at the State Department together into what is now global public affairs. Uh, so she really, she really consolidated that team. Um, but but there was always like a, a comms comms team sure. at the State Department. There's a there's a spokesperson, there's a deputy spokesperson. Right. There's an assistant secretary for 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 public affairs, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think what was different is the way we did public affairs. You know, we we approached it not so much like the traditional uh, stodgy pre, uh, State Department like press release shop. Like you put out a press release and you wash your hands of it, yeah. you know, like our job is done. You know, we, we created campaigns, which is the way you do it outside of government. You, you know, it's not a one-off message. It's part of a larger campaign. It's a campaign as part of a larger strategy. Every tactic has to connect to the strategy. If it's not connected to the strategy, it's a waste of time and resources. So 
the, the, I think the, the professionalism and the, and the, and the scientific approach and, and I would say measurement of results was something that we instituted that wasn't there when I came in. Interesting. Uh, you know, but you said for the most part, everyone was rowing in the same direction. But I, you know, I recall certain times when, uh, for example, the the if I'm getting my timeline correctly, um, you, you know, Trump uh, talks to Erdogan in Turkey and then announces he's pulling U.S. troops out of Syria, right? Um, which everyone, if, if I recall, even you know all the top uh, foreign policy people, the administration certainly here in Israel, were like, "What the f is going on? You can't do that." And then he ended up backtracking it. Both is still there. Uh, yeah, but but there was an announcement that he was yeah, going to no, pull, pull the three thousand U.S. troops out out of Syria, and and there was this kind of sense that he, that he was very impulsive in the sense he talked to he would talk to Putin, he would talk to Erdogan, he would talk to maybe not directly to the Iranian leaders, but you know we were concerned here, for example, in Israel that he could have a meeting with Rouhani in, in Iran and all of a sudden come up with some Iran policy that's totally against everything that he'd been pushing. So, I mean, there was that kind of sense because of his, um, because of his uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, unpredictability, that he could and sometimes did change policy direction and not just, you know, the messaging, the framing of something. Well, um, first of all, it... it really never happened um, in terms of radical change of direction and policy. Um, what, what I found that the president did a lot of times is try out messaging by talking about things. And so, you know, he would float an idea publicly, which was like, whoa, what is this coming? Is this change of policy? No, he's, he was just like, he was just testing it. He was just trying to, trying to see what the response would be to a particular, you know, um, way of restating something. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I would qualify the, the whole Syria episode of just big trial balloon and messaging, but, uh, but a lot of times he would do that. He would say things that were unscripted uh, in order to try and see how the target audience would respond to it. And, um, Look, and, and, and to get to his credit, you know, even when he did come up with a drastic ideas like, OK, well, we're going to pull all our troops out. It wasn't so much that it was a new idea for him. He's been talking about that for a long time. Right, sure. He's, he's been talked out of it by a number of people for a long time. But that, that was definitely his inertia. You know, his preference was not to have American troops in Syria. His preference was not to have American troops in Iraq or Afghanistan, but at the same time, he was open to other people trying to convince him that there was a different way to do it. And in fact, most of the time, 99 out of 10 times, he would listen to other inputs and probably stop short of where his, you know, his desire was, you know, uh, based on other considerations like American national security or how our allies felt or how the markets would respond or, you know, um, uh, um, various other um, factors. Let me ask you this because uh, as, as we get towards the end of our show here today, um, 
a lot of people that have worked in the White House uh, or in administration say that it's, you know, it's, it's basically the apex of their careers up to that point. They, they will never have another opportunity to have the amount of impact and the amount of uh, influence that they had as, as the time that they spent serving in an administration in, in, in the White House for, for the president. Uh, do you agree with that? And, and how do you now, you know, is it a tough act to follow as you move into a new stage of your of your professional career? Wow, well, that's, that's well, a hard I, one. I, I, got, <laughs> I, got, I got to admit, um, I did have a little bit of withdrawal period after after the administration. <laughs> I mean, it, it is hard to go from, you know, um, moving the needle on monumental issues and then kind of just being a private citizen. Um, it, it, it is, it's definitely, uh, you know, a bit of a shock to the system. Um, I can imagine. But, you know, you, you, you kind of figure out how you can contribute. And, you know, the, we weren't supposed to, no one is supposed to live in government uh, forever. And there are many ways to move the needle, which is one of the things that I'm finding out right now in the projects that I'm trying to stay involved in. Uh, because you can't do everything in government either. There's some things yeah. you can do in the private sector that you can't do in government. Uh, I certainly don't have to deal with clearance process right now. So, uh, you know, I, I still care about the issues that I worked on. I care about the Abraham Accords. I care about, um, you know, uh, a free and democratic Iran one day. I care about um, uh, the free world countering China and defining the rules of the road for the next generation in favor of freedom and democratic values as opposed to authoritarianism. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of my DNA. That's what drives me. That's what kind of brought me to government to begin with because uh, I saw communism firsthand and I'm not about to allow, you know, uh, another communist entity uh, decide how the world works and for, the, for my kids. So, so uh, like the, those things are driving me and, you know, finding ways to contribute through collaboration with, uh, you know, Shiraka, for example, in the project like, like Yella, uh, it is a way for me to do something that I'm good at, uh, to, uh, to reach an audience that I want to reach to, uh, you know, to, to try and plant positive seeds that will make it easier for uh, for peace to happen, for good things to happen, for for good people, for more people to live out their dreams. It's a, it's a good answer, uh, and for my kids to live in a better world. <laughs> I, it, uh, it's a so good answer. And it's I'll, possible. It's a good answer, and I'll, and I'll add to that, Benny. When you've been in places like that, high level government, and it also opens up a lot of doors for you afterward to be able to pursue these kind of projects. And, and before we get to kind of maybe like a closing thing with. Maybe the project you're working on now, you talked about Yala, but you're also working on a much bigger project that's that's actually your day job now. And I want to close with that because it's really cool. Uh, and I want to give you a chance to talk about it. But I, I want to take like, if we can, two, three minutes here. Um, the Capitol insurrection. <laughs> what the hell, man? What What was going on? Can you give us like an insider look? We had, by the way, a few months back or right after it happened, actually, we had a journalist uh, for The Hill who uh, who was there that day and went around and interviewed people and gave us kinds of a, an on-the-ground view 
uh, from a journalist perspective. Can you give us kind of from an inside of where you were sitting perspective of what was going on um, inside government, what was maybe a glimpse into what was going on in, in Trump's mind? Uh, I'm just r- really curious about that day what happened because, you know, you could like Trump, you can dislike Trump. Um, I, I agree with you that everything seemed, you know, he was one of the few presidents that really did what he promised he would do in his elections, which again, Democrat or Republican, it's rare. Um, and then this happens. Can you can you give us like a little insider glimpse into that from your perspective? Well, I, look, I, I was involved. I, I, I wasn't really part of the political machine at that point. Uh, I was really involved in China issues. So my, my head was really on issues like 5G or, or capital market sanctions and, uh, you know, Taiwan issues. So I really wasn't focused on what was going on that day or, or, or what was going on in terms of recounts and, and, and uh, the, the political maneuvering. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I saw the news like everybody else. Uh, and... I, you know, I, I, it, it took me a little while to put the pieces together as to what happened, why it happened. Um, you know, I, I think things obviously got out of control. Um, I, 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 you know, I do not believe, and I haven't spoken to the president, I do not believe the president ever intended for people to storm the Capitol. I don't think that was part of anybody's plan that was sensible. And uh, even if you're going to have a rally uh, aimed at the election process or election fraud or, you know, issues like that, it's not illegal to have a political rally in Washington, D.C. Right. So, you know, it's 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 not like, you know, there are rallies every day. And yes, the president was part of that rally. But when I actually saw the speech after the fact, you know, I try to look for that spark. You know, where did it happen? What did Trump do that sent people to the Capitol? And I never saw it. I never heard it. I never heard Trump say, go break windows. I never heard him say, you know, I heard him say, and so now you're going to walk to the Capitol peacefully and, uh, you know, tell him what you're thinking, something along those lines. And obviously, look, obviously, there were a lot of bad apples in the crowd. Obviously, people came to Washington. Some people came to Washington knowing that they're going to stir up trouble. Um, and uh, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I don't know who was in charge of security, who had the opportunity to bring more National Guard or not bring more National Guard. I don't know those things. Um, I do know that anybody and any conservative will tell you, you know, anybody who breaks the law should pay for it. And so people who broke the law are should be, you know, prosecuted and should be held accountable for their actions. People who did not break the law are allowed to protest. And that's the American way. And that's okay. And, um, and in terms of what the president said or didn't say, what Trump's role in it was, look, I mean, look, at a certain point, it was obvious we weren't going to win the recounts. So we weren't to get enough recounts going to make a difference. So, you know, I, I, I wish it didn't stretch that long, yeah. that whole process to, to the 6th of January. But, um, but, but um, you know, uh, there's free speech in America. And even the president can say things that you disagree with. And he's protected under the Constitution 
because the First Amendment, as I'm reminded all the time, and as I remind people all the time, is not about speech you agree with. It's about speech you disagree with. And so uh, as long as, you know, you don't break the law, you can say whatever you want. And that includes the president. Right. And I'm sure, and that, we, so, um, and I'm sure that we can all agree here on this show, at least, that, that the that the answer to speech that you don't agree with is not banning that speech. It's 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 better speech. It's making your point. It's it's convincing it people. Is. It's being a better debater. It's being a better if we, arguer. If we had not. more time, I, I'd want to get into this, but but I know you're pressed on time, and I want to give you a chance to talk about the really cool project that you're involved in now, which is which is like I said, uh, you you teased on it, and that's everything involved with with China. Um, so, and, and I want to give you a chance to talk about that, and maybe we can do a follow up episode on that if if you uh, if you yeah. <laughs> care to come back. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. If your audience cares about it, it would be they do. But back. but do you want to give a couple of minutes about what what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um look, you know, I I um just to rewind a little bit. So, I spent um a good portion of my work at the State Department working on the Middle East, the Abraham Accords and and um uh, uh and and the Iran portfolio. And the last year after Soleimani, basically, my Iran work goes from sanctions are coming to Soleimani. That's kind of like the bookends of my Iran uh, contribution. Yeah. Uh, not that I, I had anything to do with Soleimani, but uh, you, you were there on the ground kind of like controlling my the Iran uh, uh, <laughs> career. And after that, I, to be honest with you, I was going to come home uh, because yeah, I, w- I was already a couple of years late in my promise to my wife. Uh, and uh, yeah. Honey, I'm taking out the trash. uh, (laughs) I'll be back in two years. (laughs) Exactly. And so, um, you know, before I went home, somebody said, you know, before you go, you know, there's this guy named Keith Kroc, who is an undersecretary of state for economic growth, energy and the environment. And he's working on China and he really needs a marketing guy. And so you should go talk to him. So I I ended up uh, going to talk to Keith Kroc. Now, Keith Kroc is also not a government guy. Keith Kroc is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, multiple-time entrepreneur. He His last job before he joined the State Department was as a CEO of DocuSign. Uh, and uh, he, he kind of, you know, he, he, he knew how Silicon Valley and high-tech and the business world works. And he basically sat me down for a couple of hours and he had a whole playbook on how to beat China in, uh, in high-tech. And that seemed like really cool, to be honest with you. And uh, I figured out another way to convince my wife to let <laughs> me write it out for, for for another year until the end of the administration, um, you know, to, to work on China. Well, I, 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 you know, fortunately or unfortunately, COVID hit around the same time. Ironically. And, ironically. <laughs> ironically, yes, yes. And, and actually, fortuitously, for, for, for me, from a marketing perspective, Correct. but only from a marketing perspective, um, uh, it, it, uh, it became like the thing that everybody dealt with, was dealing with, was talking about, that had to figure out going forward. And, uh, you know, I found myself in the middle of that. And our team was, you know, working on getting PPE to the United States. We were short at the time. Uh, we were trying to repatriate Americans who were stuck overseas. We brought about 100,000 Americans back home. And after that initial spurt, after a couple of months, we, we, we had enough 
PPE for healthcare workers and um, Americans were home, you know, we got the charge to basically go take on China in high tech because we saw that high tech was going to be the battleground of the future, mm. the battleground, well, the battleground of then and the battleground of the future. And the key to preserving freedom in our, in our estimation was securing high tech because uh, it's, it's uh, as, as much as it's uh, part of our daily lives today, it's going to be even more important going forward, not just for us as human beings, for businesses, for countries, for just the way the world works. And so it became really important for us to recalibrate and, and, and figure out how to make sure that free countries and free individuals determine the rules of the road versus authoritarian ones led by China. So 5G became the first beach, beach, uh, beachhead for us. Uh, we took on China in 5G. Huawei was the dominant player at the time. Uh, it had about 90 worldwide deals in the beginning of 2020. We started from scratch and we built something called the Clean Network. And the Clean Network became an alliance of about 60 countries, 200 telcos, companies like uh, Oracle, Cisco, Siemens, HP, et cetera, companies like that, Japanese companies, German companies, Latin American companies that uh, essentially committed to only working with trusted suppliers in 5G. Now, why is 5G so important? Because it's not, it just doesn't deal with cell phones. 5G is the backbone to things like your refrigerator, your car, your, um, uh, your phone, your electric grid, your waste disposal system, and your F-35s. And so if you control 5G and 6G beyond that, you, you, you have a pretty good handle on, you're, you're tapped into um, how the world functions. And you can blackmail countries and you can blackmail companies and individuals if you're controlling the 5G network. So it became really important to ensure that the good guys were doing it and not the bad guys. Black, so in the end, by, and, by January... Blackmail, sorry, in the, blackmail in the sense like that, that Russia can blackmail Europe with natural gas and, and, and resources? Or, or what do you mean? Uh, well, yeah. Well, if, let's say you know uh, China decides that it wants to invade Taiwan and it, it controls the global 5G. Uh, and, you know, the uh, America or NATO wants to do something about Chinese plans to invade Taiwan, but China doesn't want NATO to do anything about sure. it. Can say, oh, NATO, by the way, we can like mess with your electrical grid. How would you like that? Will that work for your people? Uh, you know, you don't want to be caught yeah. in that scenario. You don't want to be in the scenario where China is, China can weaponize your daily your daily life. Uh, yeah. life. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so we ended up doing that. We ended up getting China to from 90 deals to about, you know, maybe maybe a dozen or so. Oh wow! Uh, we we uh, succeeded in onshoring the world's most sophisticated uh, semiconductor chip company called TSMC. It's a Taiwanese company. We brought them to the United States. Originally, it was going to be like a twelve billion dollar deal. It's now a seventy five billion dollar deal over five years. Only twelve. Uh, by the way. Only twelve. It, it, in, Intel is about to start building new. 
fabrication plants for semiconductor chips. Samsung just announced a $17 billion plant in Texas. So we, we turned, turned some of these things around. The other thing that we were doing is we tried to ensure that American taxpayers and American investors aren't financing China's war machine and Chinese human rights abuses like the, like the genocide in Xinjiang, China, which is another topic for, for an episode. Right. Um, so we, we, we uh, sanctioned a whole bunch of bad Chinese companies so they wouldn't be allowed to tap American dollars to produce their, you know, to work with the Chinese military apparatus and uh, build out their surveillance state and use slave labor. Uh, and so that work is being continued by the Biden administration in some way. So one of the, you know, my big focus these days is I stayed uh, committed to that to that issue with Keith Kroc, and we're building out something called the Technology Trust Network, which is basically uh, just getting our allies, getting companies and individuals and leaders around the world committed to ensuring that tomorrow's tech mm -hmm. is trusted tech and it's safe uh, and open and free for the for, for, uh, and conducted uh, based on democratic values. The, see Such Benny, as see Benny like just because he's out of the administration, the law, you know, <laughs> basic things like basic like things. respecting the rule of law, respecting labor rights, respecting yeah. human rights. These are basic things which the free world respects, but China and Russia and Venezuela and Iran don't. Right, that's fantastic, and, and and I mean that's a great example of using the 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 lofty position you just had in the network that you just had in order to continue advancing uh, your goals. Which uh, which you can't do if well it's a lot harder to do if you weren't in a place like that to begin with. There there like I I think we could literally go on with you for for oh, hours. Yeah, I was going to say there's so many different topics here we could delve into, and, and China fascinates me, and this this whole this whole thing just is is uh, rabbit holes and wormholes you could just dive into here. But um, so we we'd be glad to have yeah. you on again whenever uh, you wish. Thanks, how, how can people follow you? How can they stay in touch with you? Uh, how can they get involved? Yeah, check me out on Twitter at, at message from Len, and uh, you'll you'll see what I'm up to. And also follow at Watch Yella, Watch Y A L L A, uh, for for uh, the new and exciting project that I'm involved with, uh, Haiti Buza with. And uh, thank you again to Shiraka for. Uh, for being our such great partners in Israel and uh, being such great partners for peace. No, it's it's uh, it's, that's, a, that's, it's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, good times. Thank you so much, Len Len, Len Kutterkovsky. Yeah, Kutterkovsky. <laughs> Len Kutterkovsky. Thanks so much for being on Juanced, and uh, we will definitely uh, hope to see you again on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, take care. Bye bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced. <laughs>